This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7, and I'm your host, Stuart Parker. It's uh, Monday, the 7th of September, Labor Day, and in just three short days uh, in School District 57 and across the province of British Columbia, kids will be returning to classrooms, as will their teachers. Uh, This is a somewhat controversial decision. The BC Minister of Education, Rob Fleming, is taking some hard questions about his plan for reopening schools. Today, we've got three advocates for public education. Uh, Trent Derrick, uh, a school trustee on the Prince George School Board. Uh, Joanne Hapke, the president of the BC Teachers Federation local for Prince George. And uh, Andrea Beckett, the head of the Prince George District Parent Advisory Committee. First up, Trent Derrick. Uh, Joining me on the line uh, from not too far away, but not in the same space because we're distancing, is um, Prince George School Trustee uh, Trent Derrick. Um, He's a veteran of the board, uh, has been um, associated with many of the board's more progressive causes uh, in the past. Um, So first of all, thank you for coming on the program. We wanted to have you for a while. Thank you. I, I, I've tried to come on. It's uh, just timing is I'm pretty busy. I have a couple businesses, trustee stuff. It, it, it just didn't seem to work. Thanks for having well, me. Well, we're just, um, anyway, just very glad you're here. Uh, now, schools are uh, reopening um, the day after our broadcast, pretty much. And um, one of the talking points that we've been hearing from the education minister uh, has been that every school board has its own reopening plan that's based on local conditions. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, could you speak a little bit to um, uh, how your plan might be different from uh, the school district in Kamloops or from a school district of smaller communities or larger communities? What are some distinctive features of the Prince George plan? Uh, I think uh, some of the distinctive features, especially for us, I think we, we have a baseline to go with on, on what expectations are from the health minister, uh, from the local health authority, um, but we all always have to adapt uh, to our unique circumstances. Uh, SD57 is one of the largest districts uh, geographically, uh, so we have a broad range of schools. Uh, we have large schools, we have medium schools, we have small schools, and uh, we have some schools that we can properly uh, you know, less than 50 to 75 students uh, or and staff total in them. So um, we had to adjust for that. Uh, we have to adjust for transportation. Uh, we also have to adjust for uh, uh, locations of uh, how the bu- buildings are designed and, and what staff we have in. So uh, all that has to be taken into consideration when developing our plan. So, uh, so we do have the, the base, base, but we had to tweak it. And all our... Uh, plans were developed with a local health officer. So they've been uh, scrutinized quite heavily. Uh, Their input is put into it. 
Uh, so it is meant to, to review how each individual school and the overall district will open up. Did you guys have the option to delay reopening or anything like that? Or were you pretty much set the same timetable as everyone else? We're, we're set with the time, same timetable. Um, the province ha, has worked on wanting to open it up uh, consistently. Uh, but we've also been given a, a few options if we were able to, to make some changes uh, in case something wasn't working out. And that all depended on the size of school, the type of school that we are in. Uh, so that's, that's what makes everything unique. So, and uh, buildings are different ages as well. So we have to have come up with different plans and, and how they're structured. So uh, we've, we've been working on this for quite a while. <laughs> we, we had the baseline, but uh, just like anything, uh, it, it could change uh, as this pandemic has moved forward. It has, uh, we've had some new information and as research develops, uh, we'll have to adapt on the fly. So that's one thing that uh, our plan is hopefully being able to do is that uh, we're going to have to learn to adapt. Now, um, there is, um, uh, there, there's a, a busing situation. Some of your busing you do yourself. Some it's a municipal bus service or BC Transit that's doing it. Um, one of the things I've faced as a transit rider is that um, the mandatory masks are optional. It took me a while as a scholar of rhetoric to figure how something, how something could be mandatory and optional at the same time. But sometimes I get on a bus here in Prince George and um, nobody's masked not even the driver, recently as yesterday. Sometimes everybody's masked um, and uh, it's a roll of the dice. Um, when, um, uh, when you're thinking about busing, is there gonna be a minimum standard that the school district will require um, for kids to be safe either on the school buses or the uh, BC Transit fleet? I not, can't really comment on the, the BC Transit. Uh, the, they aren't under our mandate and, and expectations, but those would be uh, have to follow it up for WorkSafe and um, the health authority itself uh, with any of those. But what we can speak on is what we have direct control over, which is our busing system uh, and how we work on that. So uh, what we're put in place is our, our mask and and the extensive cleaning uh, policies that are that are required. So uh, once the students are left, there'll be extra cleaning, extra sanitizing uh, before they're picked up, after they're picked up. So uh, that's what our policies are uh, in place. And uh, so that's, it, it is gonna take some more time. Uh, well, are you able to enforce a everyone must be masked on the bus policy? On ours, yes. So All for, right. So ours are, uh, we're going to try to, uh, there are plan on how to uh, load the kids. So it will be the first on, first off, uh, as well as um, the sign seating. So they're cons consistently in, in, the sign, in the same seats, uh, trying to social distance as, as great as possible on there. So that's going to be where ours is. Um, so it will look quite a bit different with kids. So they won't be able to just pick and choose where they sit as usual or as it was before the pandemic. Uh, and that's way we can monitor uh, where they sit and keep the distances uh, for them. Now, um, <clears throat> uh, there have been some protests here. There have been people standing in hedges wearing Guy Fox masks. It took me a while to figure out what those people were doing or what their signs meant. But it turns out that 
even in um, a community like Prince George, there's a portion of the population that um, um, views um, the uh, the pandemic as a conspiracy, as a falsehood. Um, and of course, this fits into a larger problem uh, around things like vaccinations and whatever with uh, with kids in school. Um, what um, how how are you planning to deal um, with people who um, don't or won't mask their kids or older kids who have come to subscribe to one of these theories? Uh, what are what tools are in the toolbox for that? Uh, I think there's it's complex. So you you can't just uh, put it into one toolbox as well. I guess so. Yeah, there's got to be numerous approaches. Um, with it as well. So uh, some of them will fall back onto our um, our, our older policies uh, outside of the pandemic as well uh, for health and safety. Uh, so when it comes to uh, policies that are put in place by the health authority, uh, we are required to enforce them. And that will also include uh, any forms of discipline that are required on it and in discussions with the parents. Uh, so what, what we also have in it is a uh, you know that we we do have the health authority uh, and what they require and what their requirements are for us to follow. Uh, so I, I think um, it is a larger problem as all uh, about the the conspiracy theories out there. And uh, so I think that's that's uh, 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 it's just not a school district problem. I think it it comes with a provincial problem, a federal problem, and this other municipal problems on how we combat that false information. Uh, so for us, it's it's uh, if you go online, we have our we have our plan. I think that's the the first stop there, but it's also to have frank discussions about uh, 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 the frank discussions on true source, I guess, what, what, how we have our sources, and I think that's um, it, it, it's something that we need to tackle as a, as a school district and, and an education system is how we we look into that truth uh, and the sources of where it's found uh, uh, as a, as an academic <laughs> uh, from you mr parker it's uh, probably something you struggle with as well is is how we we look into the research and and how we follow up with uh, our sources of material so um, i think that's one of the the struggles we're facing right now is with q and on uh, we're starting to see that take over, uh, and it was a little, a little uh, website uh, that I was aware of a couple of years ago, but uh, dismissed it. But sometimes, I, I guess that's the danger of dismissing something like that. Um, that uh, it does start to take a life on its own. So it should have been combated earlier. Well, one of the uh, now. Uh, there are a lot of different approaches to how one pushes back against that. And one of the ones that surprised me through the whole pandemic has been um, uh, the personality cult that has developed around Bonnie Henry, the religious style art, the special shoes, um, this sense that she's the embodiment of expertise and of expert authority. And we see her being venerated in expected and unexpected ways. But recently, there was a little, um, a little bit of the shine came off Bonnie Henry as a public figure, not just in the minds of chronic skeptics like myself, but the more general public reaction to an ad in which she appeared about the school reopening, in which a fictional classroom was presented 
in which there were only seven students, in which there was space to physically distance, and, um, and then the government was asked about the production of the ad and why it didn't depict the classrooms that will actually be opening where there'll be far less space, far more students, uh, far fewer of the protocols that were in the ad. And the response was that it would have been illegal to make the ad based on current labor practices, that WorkSafe wouldn't let the ad be made. And then there was some, I think, indelicate shuffling from the education minister who seemed to echo some Donald Trump-like statements that children are virtually immune to the disease and that schools can't really be a vector for transmission. So one of the, the problems that, it, that some of us are facing is um, if we're trusting science as opposed to Bonnie Henry, if we're distrusting Donald Trump and trusting science, how do we reconcile this plan that looks like we won't be able to maintain six feet distancing, we won't be able to limit crowd size in the way that crowd sizes are limited in restaurants and workplaces. Um, how do we reconcile um, those, two, those two positions in the reopening plan? And, uh, yeah, uh, it's tough to comment on it, but uh, I'll give my best shot on it. I, I well, think it's the toughest question in the interview, so we saved that for this. <laughs> uh, thanks for sitting there right in the middle there. <laughs> I, I think it's, uh, uh, as uh, someone who's followed politics, and I think that's the, the tough part about it, is uh, giving a political answer to a scientific question uh, is not always uh, not always going to work out well. <laughs> and I think that's the problem where what we're starting to see now is that we're trying to see politics, uh, trying to be political and follow up with science. Um, for us, and I, I think I can put it on experience uh, and, and just myself putting it into the plan, so I'll speak to that, is that uh, I have two businesses as well. And as a, as a, a, a business owner, uh, I've had to have those tough conversations. Is it worth being open? Uh, for the health and safety of my, some of my staff. And, and at the same time, we're trying to balance it with uh, uh, my staff still need to work. <laughs> they, some of them, you know, they have families, they have kids, they have, uh, and this is all pre-served. So uh, the advantage I took is with that is uh, research as much as I can uh, on former pandemics, uh, former uh, know, is back as far as the Spanish flu and what happened with H1N1, what happened with SARS, uh, and, and work with there and, and see what the best uh, and safest scenarios were when it comes to hand washing, when it comes to masks, when it comes to setting up social distancing. Um, so we, we took it very seriously, um, and it comes into our businesses for those that uh, flaunt, the, flaunt the safety and rules. I have no problem uh, asking them to leave, uh, mostly for the safety of uh, my staff. I, I, that comes first and foremost in the safety of the general public. And when we put this plan together, I think that's the balancing act is, uh, we're looking, that's the, the questions we have. We have WorkSafe BC, uh, and that's the tough balance. We have WorkSafe BC, we have the unions, we have, uh, we have the health authority. We're all trying to work together and, and improve these plans or, or come together and, and work on the plans as well. So uh, it's, uh, so if we're looking at the science, uh, we're taking the best, uh, 
best advice that we have from the health authorities. We're taking the best advice that we have from WorkSafe BC uh, and our uh, our partner groups, which would also be the parents and and, uh, and our uh, our unions, uh, our indigenous groups had a say in it as well. So. Um, there's a lot to balance. There's a lot to take into consideration. And how do we move that forward? So uh, as a politician, sometimes if you try to turn it into a political statement on, on science uh, and trying to balance that, you'll, you'll end up with the exactly what we had with Bonnie Henry. And so let me just, uh, let me ask the, a short version of the question. This yeah. plan, if we see schools becoming significant vectors of the spread, um, Will you call an emergency meeting and shut this down? Uh, yeah, we, we have that on the table as well. Uh, we are c- continually in contact with our uh, health authority. We're continually in talk with our union and we're still in c- continued talk with uh, the minister. So there is a lot, uh, Minister of Education and uh, the... So we have that uh, ability. And we also have, if you take a look at our, our plan, if to, we have plans uh, in place for to step back if we have to go into uh, the reverse course and with the stages and, and how we plan that. So um, the plan is just not if everything's rosy. <laughs> we are planning in case things actually do go back and we have to uh, come up with a new uh, strategy for our parents. So uh, we always, it's it's just not one plan. We have to have several plans in place based on other contingencies that possibly could come up. Now, uh, of course, uh, you guys aren't the only schools in uh, Prince George. Uh, Prince George has a robust homeschooling community and it has, uh, and many of its uh, residents send their kids to um, private schools away or have them attend private schools here. in many ways, the, um, the parochial schools, the religious schools, the homeschooling possess more material resources to keep, um, to maintain distancing, maintain isolation, things like that. Um, what case would you make to a parent who was thinking of pulling their kid out of the public system and putting them into one of those situations for fear of COVID? Uh, I don't think I, would, I, I can make that case. I, I can say what I can do is defend our what we put in, the work that we put in. But I think when it comes to uh, what's out there is uh, each family has to make the decision that's best for their family uh, at this time. It's, uh, we've, I'm comfortable and confident in the plan we put in place. Um, it, it, as someone that has gone through it, especially with our businesses, uh, and, and we've worked uh, with a plan uh, with the health authority with WorkSafe BC and, and dealing with those inspections is that, um, you know, we staff in, uh, especially the board of education has really wanted safety first and, and we can move forward with that. Uh, so I can defend the plan that way, but to, and you give the facts and, and say, this is what we're doing. This is what we're planning. And that's the best I can do. Uh, because at, at this, uh, we are in, in unprecedented times, uh, and I have to ex- respect the the stress that is on families right now and uh, uh, and how they feel. So uh, it would just to be offer what we have. This is what we have going forward. This is what insurances we can put in place. But uh, uh, I think it's uh, we're we're hearing a lot of that. We're getting a lot of questions, which is good. 
we're getting a lot of phone calls from families. We're getting a lot of phone calls from parents, our, our men, the principals and teachers. Uh, and we are, we're giving them and, and answering those questions. So I think that's, that's what our job is to do. Our job isn't to, to uh, force someone to come back to school if they don't feel comfortable, but that they have other options out there. So um, now, of course, we were, you were doing a whole bunch of stuff before COVID hit, as we all were. Um, and you took a really um, courageous position on uh, Indigenous reconciliation. Um, this turned into a bit of a conflict over um, the school that would, the name of the school that would replace Kelly Road. Um, how, are, how are you feeling? Um, with these kinds of projects, I imagine life goes on. Do you feel like we're over that hump in terms of the, um, the dust up around reconciliation? Do you feel like we're moving forward a little more unified now? Uh, I think it, we have a start. We have a long way to go. Uh, I, I've said this for, right from the very start. Uh, uh, if you read the report on truth and reconciliation, the first part is truth. You can't have reconciliation until we acknowledge what has happened in the past, until we acknowledge uh, what ha has gone on with uh, our Indigenous populations in, in Canada. Um, and there's still a large segment of Canadians that uh, have no idea or deny. Uh, so I, I still think we're in the truth part before true reconciliation, because uh, what are you going to reconcile if you don't know what you're, you're trying to fix, if you don't, there's a problem. So I, I think there's a long way to go. Uh, I think there's a, a lot of work. Um, and uh, I'm realistic in, in that it's taken us 150 years of uh, colonization in Canada uh, and over 100 years under the Indian Act. Uh, so it's not going to be an overnight fix uh, when it's strategically planned to wipe out a culture. That's going to take some time to, uh, to help uh, rebuild the, the confidence in Indigenous communities. Well, um, uh, we're appreciative on the show of the work you personally have done on that front. Uh, but uh, we're out of time, so I want to thank you very much for coming on, taking some tough questions. It's greatly appreciated. Oh, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it, it, I always enjoy a, a good, robust conversation. So <laughs> I think that's the only way we can uh, move forward and, and have uh, more uh, honesty and transparency is actually having tough questions and, and moving forward and, and having that honest conversation. So thank you for having me on. And, All right. I'm threatening you with a return visit. Can't wait to have you back. <laughs> All right. All right. Bye, thank you, Stuart. You are listening to CFUR 88.7 on your FM dial. The show is Missing Peter Zosky and Prince George. I'm your host, Stuart Parker, and that was Trent Derrick, Prince George School Trustee, uh, business owner, and activist. Next up will be Joanne Hapke from the BC Teachers Federation, whom we interviewed on Friday as well. Uh, returning to the show uh, from just down the street, I can probably see her office from my window, uh, is uh, Joanne Hapke, uh, president of the uh, Prince George BCTF. Um, and uh, 
she's come back on the show to talk about the thing we're talking about this week, uh, the school reopening plan uh, that is rolling out across BC. So first of all, welcome back and thank you. Thank you for having me on, Stuart. I always appreciate the chance to advocate for teachers to in a wider forum. Okay, so um, we, uh, I always imagined that our next interview would be about the contract. We won't even get to that this interview because uh, this week, uh, according to the Ministry of Education, every school district in the province is reopening its uh, schools and resuming classes. Um, now, there was an ad that the provincial government put out about what that would look like. And it involved seven kids in a classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, it had our, our favorite public access star, Bonnie Henry, leading the classroom. And there was a lot of distance and a lot of protocols that um, are not actually gonna be happening. Um, uh, what was your take on the ad and um, how it affects your explanation of what teachers are dealing with. Okay, so first of all, I have to say that we are disappointed that the uh, ministry used Bonnie Henry in that way. Dr. Bonnie Henry has done an incredible job within this province. Um, and it was truly unfortunate that she was put into that ad. Now, having said that, that ad clearly demonstrates what teachers are looking for. Within that classroom was physically distanced uh, children. Uh, there were there was a child wearing a mask, which you know that that will be a choice item within our class our schools moving forward, especially in the elementary schools. Uh, but there was space between desks. There was a hand washing station, a sink within that classroom. Not every classroom uh, in BC has a sink in in it and so there are sink access in hallways and so then we're going to be looking to hand sanitizing as our way of keeping yourself safe when dr bonnie henry clearly states hand washing is number one we may not be able to actually do that number one well physical distancing and hand washing and so we do know within our classroom there will not be physical distancing as required in all other aspects of our life. And there will not be the hand washing available to students as, as necessary. And we will be relying on hand sanitization to, to meet uh, that need. Okay, so um, uh, this is, you know, uh, it's funny because there was a moment when normally we think of our provincial government as enemies of the Trump White House. But there was a moment last week where Rob Fleming, the Minister of Education, and Donald Trump were skanked from the same songbook when they stated that children are virtually immune to COVID and there's no danger of schools uh, becoming major disease transmission vectors. Um, how do we reconcile um, this, the presentation of the science here? You know, the teachers are struggling with that. Uh, we, we, we love our children and we want them safe. And so we, we worry that they are going to transmit to one another, even though the data at this point, six months worth of data has said 
they're not going to truly transmit to each other. They're going to be transmitting to the adults. And this is where uh, my concerns come in because the, the teachers are the adults in that room. And so I'm very happy that the government is saying that children are safe. That makes, that helps us sleep at night. What's keeping me up at night is how are the teachers safe? Because right now the only thing keeping them safe is a mask and the hand sanitizer. That's the safety plan. We do not have physical distancing, which is the number one on that pyramid of safety uh, to, to keep everybody else safe. Teachers will not have that. And so the, 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 the recommendations for schools are vastly different from the recommendations for all other aspects of, the, of our life. And that is what teachers are struggling with. Why do we have to uh, line up to get into a grocery store, uh, but staggered entry for 1400 students into one of our high schools? It, it just doesn't make sense that uh, education is being viewed so differently. Now, having said that, teachers want to work with our students. But in the end, we want to do it in a safe manner so that those students are safe and that we are going home to our families and that we are safe in keeping our families safe. And one of the ways we can do that is through lessening the classroom density within our schools. And we have received federal money. The government, the federal government gave money and Prince George's share of that federal money is $2.4 million. And the district is having discussions now, we're discussing it today, I'm told, uh, what they were going to be using that money for. Uh, the union was not part of those discussions. We asked to be part of those discussions. We'll probably get a chance to respond, but we certainly stated to, uh, to the uh, senior administration team that we are advocating for more teachers to be hired to allow for the physical distancing to occur, classroom density to occur, but also more importantly as well, or as importantly, remote learning opportunities for students whose families are trying to make a decision that keeps them safe. Now, um, BC Ministry of Education suffered uh, fewer, uh, I mean, almost no provincial ministry had a significant purge of the senior civil service when the NDP took power, but many people made special note of the number of senior BC Liberal activists for uh, uh, Fraser Institute directors and the like who remain at the senior levels of that government. Um, and I know that, uh, and of course, part of the agenda of that group is the shrinking of the public schools and the growth of private schools. Um, I know just within my own friend circle, a number of people who are considering moving their kids to private schools that are better meeting physical distancing requirements because they have more money and people considering uh, pulling their kids into homeschooling programs uh, in order to uh, in order to exit the public system um, it uh, but I mean Rob Fleming uh, came into the NDP as uh, one of those annoying kids at university selling socialist worker. How is it that we're seeing the minister so under the sway of, of people with this agenda? You know, Stuart, if I had the answer to that, I would be telling you how this has occurred. Uh, we, we just 
I personally cannot understand how he is abdicating his responsibility. Before he was Minister of Education, he came to our provincial meetings, he heard our concerns, he agreed with every single one of our concerns and told us when he's in government, things will be different. And so, yes, he did go into government. They, he kept his deputy minister, Scott McDonald, longtime liberal uh, employee, um, and, and he was received advice from Scott McDonald and continues to receive advice from his deputy minister. But what's most important and what we're seeing here is that once again, he's abdicating his responsibility. He is not telling the districts what they need to be doing. And so this NDP minister is giving um, recommendations to superintendents around the province who are not always uh, NDP supporters. So they can continue on with the liberal agenda of what is happening within when their districts. And you can't help but, but think that, you know, I'm just going to kind of advise you as to what you should be doing. So like with this federal money, he could have told every superintendent, you will hire more teachers, you will create uh, more density within the classrooms. Um, he did not do that. He's allowing every district to create their own plan. And so now we don't know what's going to happen. So it's, it's disappointing how he has not fully embraced the role that we voted him into. Now, um, I asked uh, Trent Derrick that, you know, if the worst case scenario happens, if it turns out that the schools do become vectors for transmission, significant vectors for transmission into the homes of teachers and out that way and into the homes of parents on the other end and out that way. Um, I mean, smallpox had the same transmission mechanisms. Um, we do have some sense of, even if the kids don't transmit it to each other, what that can still look like. Um, so I asked, like, is there an emergency break here? Can you take an emergency vote to shut the schools down? And the answer was yes. So the quest, there's a similar emergency break situation, of course. You guys have your hands on a different break, which is job action. Um, what, um, what would it take for the BCTF to step in and protect uh, the public if the provincial and local governments don't uh, rise to the occasion? Uh, so the BCTF is a very democratic union. It would take a special uh, representative assembly meeting, an emergency meeting, and recommendations coming from our local reps uh, from every district to recommend to the BCTF to, to take those actions. Uh, job action, we have a collective agreement. The idea of taking job action is not even considered at this time. Uh, but what we are saying is that the local leaders need to be able to say at the end of the day that they have done everything possible to keep staff and students safe. We have been providing them with suggestions. We have been meeting, we have had working groups, teachers on working groups meeting all summer long, giving them advice, giving them suggestions. Uh, and it seems to me that they, it is, everything is falling on deaf ears or just not being transmitted the way it should be uh, or being given to the right person. So, and with that abdication of power by the ministry, 
it's it's coming down to our local district leaders. The senior administration over at our school board office has to be able to say when a parent phones them up and says, we have, my children have COVID, the senior administration has to be able to say, uh, we've done everything to keep your child safe. Now they are, they are following the provincial health uh, guidelines, but are those guidelines in schools actually the safest guidelines that we should be operating in under? Should we be opening our schools so that uh, kids are being told, just don't touch one another. Physical distance in, in your classroom, don't worry about it because you can't. Uh, just don't touch one another, don't share items. Uh, you, you know, our guidelines, we, I, I wonder myself personally, is it enough for the reality of our classrooms? And I worry about that. And of course, our guidelines are, are assumed that they're going to be followed by everyone, that all students will be compliant, that they will hear, well, oh, I'm not allowed to do this, so therefore I won't do this. That is not the realities of our classrooms. So, well, it's not, it's not the general reality here. So I, I, uh, so there are these signs up at the bus stop and, you know, I'm one of the small proportion of uh, people in Prince George who get around by public transit. So it's been the policy of BC Transit that masks are mandatory on the bus. But it is also the policy of BC Transit that the mandatory masks are optional and do not have to be worn. Now, as a uh, guy who taught rhetoric at the university level for a couple of years, this uh, slowed me down for a few days. Getting on the mandatory mask bus and discovering no one, not even the driver, was wearing a mask. Uh, that's two days ago. Uh, now, I bring this up not just because of how optional this situation is, but because of the degree to which um, um, within the central part of School District 57, the schools rely on municipal transit in order to deliver kids to the classroom, particularly in the heart um, and uh, in the Southwest Prince George. Um, is, um, is there any work being done with the, the, the GEU or other unions or with other levels of government to try and at least bring how those kids are getting to school into sync with the policies of what's happening once they arrive? And so truly, I have not been part of those discussions nor tried to be part of those discussions. Uh, the bus drivers are not my members and my concerns that I've been working with all summer long, and truly since March, is for the teachers and other PGDTA members within our, our district and of course for the students. So uh, the busing is important but not under my mandate. And it seems that, uh, yes, you've got your hands more than full given the situation. Now, when um, the government defended its uh, Bonnie Henry Act, um, their argument was that they portrayed a completely false image of the inside of a classroom because it would have been illegal to film what the classroom would actually look like. Um, so how is it we can have this disparity in labor standards where the standards uh, for the safety of actors and the standards for the safety of teachers are so far apart. You know, and, and once again, that, that's one of our questions. So when the ministry came out and said, well, we, we had to film it this way because we had to meet the health and safety requirements for those child actors. We went, 
we know. What about the child students who are coming into our classrooms? You know, the, the irony is, so we can have um, our 22 elementary students within our classrooms all day, but then we can't take them to Dairy Queen for an ice cream cone because we can only have them in groups of six at that point. So we like it, it's just it's the irony of the decisions that are being made that really confuse us and, and cause us to wonder: Is this the safest restart plan that that the province could have come up with? And, and we're saying no. And once again, the te the teachers were part of the uh, working groups provincially. And there were districts around the province that were including their unions into discussions. We have not been part of those discussions. We have been um, receiving uh, agenda. We've been receiving plans that we're allowed to respond to and ask questions on, but we have not been part of the creation of a plan. And that is unfortunate because as we are meeting, uh, we met with our um, teachers on Wednesday through Zoom. We had a general meeting, 200 teachers were on there. And great ideas were flowing out of those conversations because we are the ones in the classrooms, but we are not part of the discussion on how to how things can look. We are receiving a plan and having to deal with the plan. And it, yeah, it is just unfortunate that we are not we are not being included in decisions. But yeah, that that ad was was um, it, it was just disappointing that they did that to her and then tried to uh, to sell health and safety as the reason why uh, they had to film it the way that they did. And teachers are all around the problems are saying exactly health and safety. What about us? So um, now uh, we've, uh, we've got an action packed fall ahead of us, I guess, as all of this rolls out. Um, if, um, uh, if a parent came to you thinking about taking out a loan to enroll their kid in an independent school or stepping back from work in order to educate their kid at home, um, what would you say, first of all, what is there an alternative to those plans for parents who don't feel they have confidence? And are those plans advisable at this point? So we're always going to, if, if a parent came to me, I, I will always give them the truth of my understanding of, of the plans. And so uh, right, right now we are being told by Premier Horgan that parents are able to step back and uh, do distance learning and not lose their space in the schools. Parents uh, can step back and, uh, and do something that, that supports their uh, need to keep their child safe and not lose their space in the schools. Uh, you talk about homeschooling. I don't know a lot about the homeschooling in Prince George, but if that's an option that parents want to take, that is something that uh, you know we could direct them in that way. But also making very clear that if you are choosing homeschooling, you you've removed yourself from the public education system. Uh, private schools. The, you know, I don't know enough about our current private schools in Prince George to say that they actually are able to meet the physically distanced uh, requirements that are that are held in the in our public um, or, or out in the the outside world outside of schools. Um, but I would certainly encourage all parents to do their homework before they make a decision. Uh, parents know their children best, and they need to be supported 
in making those decisions. I would hate to see any parent leave a public system uh, thinking they're going to get something better something someplace else and then not get what they were hoping for. Um, parents are encouraged to contact their schools uh, that they are currently registered in and discuss learning options with the administration that is there. Actually speak to the teachers. We don't know a lot right now. We're going to receive some training next week on Tuesday. Um, but we, yeah, we, we, we're in the dark too. We have some ideas, but we're in the dark too. And you know, kids don't come back until Thursday. That's six days from now. Anything could happen between now and Thursday when groups of children start entering our schools again. Well, on that uh, cliffhanger note, I will let you go and uh, we will stay in touch in the days to come. Absolutely, Stuart. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Joanne Hapke, president of the BC Teachers Federation for Prince George. Next up on Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7 is Andrea Beckett, uh, who we reached on Sunday. She speaks for the Prince George District Parent Advisory Committee. Joining me on the line from just a short distance away here in Prince George is uh, Andrea Beckett, uh, the uh, head and spokesperson for the uh, District 57 uh, uh, Parent Advisory Committee. Uh, thanks for finding the time for us in the middle of the preschool madness. Oh, it's a pleasure to join you guys as always. So, um, uh, my my question right away is: You have kids in the system. Um, yes. Are you sending them to school on Thursday? And how are you feeling about it? Uh, I am sending them to school. I have three daughters. My oldest two are in school. The youngest is not till next year. And yes, they're going back on Thursday. Uh, they did go back in June already when there was a partial return to school, and we saw how much they missed it and needed it, and really thrived when they were back in that classroom setting and so they and they handled the change very very well we had lots of open conversations at the family dinner table and anytime around the house and we were just very honest and explained things to them and they were intrigued and curious and they were really hoping that school came back in September we got lots of love can we go back are we able to go back so they're very excited and you how excited are you feeling about what's the sort of mixture of trepidation versus um, anticipation for you? Uh, maybe a little bit of trepidation, but not very much. Honestly, I'm in the unique position that being both chair of the District Parent Advisory Council, as well as being a nurse, I get you know, both sides of the story at a level that probably most parents don't have access to. So I am comfortable sending my kids back. I'm excited about it. Um, I have good faith in that the plan that the school districts put together because we were very engaged with them in the plan that was put together for the return to school in June as well as this one. They've been very collaboratively working with our voice at the table and taking our feedback. So I have a little bit of trepidation more about not so much a COVID outbreak or anything, but as kids getting resettled and finding their way back in because they've missed so much learning. Right. Now, um, 
Uh, I just spoke with uh, Joanne Hapke. She's much less happy with the level of consultation the district has had when it comes to uh, uh, the people who will be standing at the front of the classroom. Um, what's your sense of um, of uh, of how um, of how teachers are feeling? Like your DPAC has an excellent relationship with the BCTF. Um, how are you feeling about? Uh, about um, the morale and other stuff when it comes to uh, the people who'll be looking after the kids? Well, I understand where they're coming from. I mean, as nurses, we were in the same position when we had to go back to work after the outbreak in the hospital was in a changing position. However, I also have to maintain that as a lens, we're speaking for the parents. So we do understand the morale of the teachers and the nerves and the uncertainty. Um, uh, but I'm not going to speak on behalf of the BCTF. So yeah, I, I do understand where they're coming from for sure. I also have to say I have ultimately a lot of faith in the teachers of our school system because I know that they have the best interest of our students at heart and a lot of them are parents as well. So I'm not concerned about what they will be providing for my children at the front at all. So um, uh, I've asked uh, my other two guests about the controversial back to school ad that the government produced, where it depicted a classroom quite unlike the ones that um, students will be returning to. And um, when they were pressed on why there were these big disparities in how the classroom looked, uh, their response was that labor laws would not have permitted them to film the ad uh, accurately depicting the return to school. Um, and the government seems to have, have come up with a bit of, of egg on its face over this. Even our very popular provincial medical health officer has taken a bit of a PR hit. Um, when people bring this controversy up with you, what's, what's your response? Honestly, I actually haven't had a lot of parents bring up the commercial. I think parents are more focused at the local level. They want to know what their schools are doing. More of the issues that I've heard from parents are uh, with our teacher shortage. If, some, if there's an outbreak and, you know, or if there's a reason that a teacher has to stay home sick, how are we going to cover? We're already short. Uh, how are our aging buildings with the ventilation and the airflow going to look in some of the more rural schools? Those are more the questions that I've gotten from the parents. I honestly haven't gotten anybody really concerned about the poorly shown, unintentionally poorly shown commercial. Okay, well that, that's, uh, that's quite helpful. Now with the more rural schools um, that have these older ventilation systems, um, which ones are, um, which ones present challenges? Because I remember we used to have a very sort of open ventilation system based on old radiator technology and things like that. And then in the 80s, we moved to these uh, buildings that were sealed in a sense, that had a lot of internal air circulation and uh, very few points of venting, inhibitions on opening windows. Of those two kinds of buildings, sort of the the sealed buildings of the later 20th century versus the um, um, uh, radiator-based, uh, window-based buildings of the mid-century, which are actually uh, presenting challenges? 
I don't know that the buildings themselves are presenting challenges because the research has clearly shown that, uh, you know, any of the current ventilation systems, which our schools have to have um, be inspected and up to date, right? Uh, and then we all just went through this when they were looking at even as an extension of the radon and all that. All our schools got a thorough review recently. Um, but back to the research. So the research has clearly shown that ventilation systems are not the source of outbreak. In fact, it's actually just having a complete lack of ventilation systems. So I think it's just explaining to the parents the difference. They hear ventilation, think old school. So it's just been a lot of education. And a lot of that is also information fatigue, right? There's so much information. A lot of it seems contradictory, which in a way it is because, of course, we're always learning more about this virus. We're a lot further along than we were in even February and March, but there's still a lot that we're learning. So when parents are saying, oh, it seems like the information is always changing, it is because we're learning more and we're updating as we go along. Do you foresee any possibility that we'd have to uh, reclose the schools, that they could become... Uh, transmission vectors, um, even if they're not hotbeds of, of infection. Do you see any way that, um, that we might be curtailing this term before, uh, before December? That is always a possibility. That's why it's a five stage kind of flow chart, right? Where we are on as a needle on where we go right now. We're in stage two, and yes, we could go back to stage three or four. Um, but that being said, the biggest way we can prevent that is as parents and families is being honest. And I know that's hard with people in work, but not sending your kids to school sick, even if you think they might be sick. Uh, doing the same for yourself at work, right? It's a bit of that personal social responsibility as people and as families that we have to take that. And that has been shown to be the biggest way we can curb the transmission of this virus is basic hygiene, hand washing, keeping clean, and then not going out if we're not sick, even if we go, oh, it's not COVID. You know, honestly, we don't know, right? So. A concern that, uh, that Joanne raised was um, uh, that um, uh, hand washing is not really realistic in most classrooms, that we'll be working with a lot of hand sanitizer. And mm -hmm. she made a fairly sharp distinction between uh, the hand washing that, uh, our provincial medical health officer recommends and the little sanitizer um, uh, bottles that are out there. Is, is that a significant um, uh, issue in this plan? Um, well, based on the information we got from Dr. Raquel Kling when we had our DPAC virtual town hall to address the parents' uh, safety concerns about health issues going back to school, uh, Raquel made it very clear that no, either or is appropriate. It's more teaching kids not to use, you know, globs of hand sanitizer. And I, I can speak to that. My little one is very good at it. <laughs> 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 I have to portion it out in small bottles. So it's, it's more about just education. Um, but at the same time, you know, kids do go to the bathroom and wash your hands. And there's still opportunities for washing your hands. It's not to say that that will replace it. It'll supplement it. Right. And the question I've left off with in the last two interviews is um, if you're approached by a parent who um, is thinking about homeschooling or sending their kid to an independent fee paying school um, in response to uh, their concerns about COVID, what would your response be? Um, I would just want to explore the exact reasons why. Often it's just, uh, I found a lot of parents, like I said, 
information overload, don't know where to start. Once we start working through where their concerns are and start addressing, well, this is addressed this way. This is where masks are. This is where all those things are. Uh, here's your resources, right? Here's the SD57 page. Here's the DPAC page. Here's the BCC PAC page, which is amazing resources and start getting them informed. We found that a lot of their worries kind of decrease and they feel empowered and they can find, realize, that, oh, you know, people have considered this. There is a plan for this. That being said, some families, for any number of reasons, are still going to make the choice to either homeschool or look, like you said, at an alternative method. And those choices have to be up to that family. And we totally support families making the choices. We just want to make sure that they make informed and empowered choices and not just purely out of fear. And that's what we're working for. And then if they choose to homeschool, that we can say, okay, these are the resources you can go to to look into that further and make sure they've had a discussion also with their schools and their PACs to make sure that they're making the right decision. Because once you take your child out of the school system, it's not so easy to pop them back in. Or if you're at a choice school or a school outside of your catchment, right, uh, that spot isn't held for you. So we need parents just to be aware of the full impact of those choices. And then as long as they understand that, we, we really happily support them doing whatever is right for their family. All right. Well, on that note, I'm going to let you get back to doing what's right for your family uh, today. <laughs> and uh, hopefully that's enjoying the Labor Day weekend. Uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Not a problem. Thanks for having us. And once again, I encourage parents to really please reach out to your school administration. Your local school plan will look unique to your school and reach out to your local PACs. Uh, they have a lot of information too. And otherwise, please do reach out to us through our Facebook or webpage or any which way. Uh, we're here to support the parents. In this. Thanks so much. This has been another broadcast of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7, co-sponsored by Los Altos Institute, L-O-S-A-L-T-O-S dot C-A. Thank you.